بسم الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وفقها في الدين يا رب العالمين الحمد لله this is remind me what session this is number three correct Number three for module seven, family law on marriage. And just in case you're wondering how long this is going to go on, I foresee us having maybe one more session, at the most two more sessions, when we talk about the issues of marriage. So, so far we've talked about the meaning of nikah in the Arabic language and according to the Sharia, we talked about the ruling on getting married, and we mentioned that the majority of the scholars mentioned it is mandub or mustahab or sunnah mu'akkada. It's a highly emphasized sunnah. And last week we talked about some of the etiquettes and manners and ways of going about proposing to the prospective bride and the process of getting to know them and propose the right way. And similar matters and in that discussion we talked about one of the conditions in the marriage which is kafa'a or suitability we talked about how in the school of Imam Malik the basis of kafa'a is deen that there is suitability in matters of deen and in the other schools they consider other things such as the profession the social economic uh, uh, status, uh, even lineage, and things like that. So today, inshallah, we're going to talk about the prerequisites of marriage, the pillars of marriage, and we'll take a look in the marriage contract itself and look at contractual details. So those of you who are here, and I think all of you were here, when we talked about the fiqh of tahara and salat, you will have noticed how as we were talking about purification and prayer we were describing the fard ayn elements that led the person to the state of praying so we began by talking about water like so you need water to remove najasa and to make wudu and all of that so we talked about water so then we assumed that so and so found good water clean water so now what is he going to do with it? He's going to make wudu with it. So we talked about how to make the wudu. And after that, we said, he now has wudu. Now he needs to know what time is the prayer coming in. So we talked about the times of the prayer. We then talked about how he's going to find the qibla. And then the calling of the adhan. And now the covering of the awrah. So we're building up those qualities that need to be there before he raises his hands and utters the takbir for salat. And then we talked about the prayer. Likewise for marriage. We're talking about the legal rulings for marriage, how a person may go about finding the right person to marry, and that whole process with approaching the father and so on. So now we're at that stage where they're going to get married. So that's where we are. So we talk about the prerequisites, the shurut, the arkan, the pillars of marriage, and details about the aqd, the marriage contract itself. 
So is Khalid is not here. So is okay. Right, he's on Umrah. Taqabbalullah. So Khalid, unfortunately, well, fortunately, he's not here. He's in a better place. But we always use Khalid, not our Khalid, but we use Khalid as a general name. So let's picture this scenario. Khalid was told about Layla. Why do we use Layla? Layla is an obscure name. So Khalid was told about Layla. He was interested in marriage, so he went to Abu Layla, the father of Layla. He didn't go to her directly. He's a smart man. He went to Abu Layla and he spoke about his interest. The parents of both Khalid and Layla spoke and arranged for the two to meet. They got to know one another in a halal way. We can say over a little bit of time. They both prayed istikhara to determine if this is the right thing to do. And they agreed to set a date for marriage in the future. So now they're ready. There's the intention. The, hall, the wedding hall has been rented. The catering service has been hired. What now? There are certain prerequisites that need to be in place before that marriage takes place. And a lot of these prerequisites should have been determined from day one. But we mentioned them here. What are those shurut? These conditions. These things have to be in place for the marriage to happen. There has to be first and foremost uh, marriageability. So that means that Khadid and Layla are both permissible for one another. That means that they are not mahram to one another. The mahram means they are unmarriageable kin. They can't be that. They can't be so close in their relations that they're like sister and brother. That would be haram. Likewise, they have to make sure that they're not siblings through wet nursing, through rada'a. And it's very important for Muslims who do this to have very accurate, detailed record keeping to make sure that these things are clear. Because let's say there is a woman who has, she is a wet nurse, so she breastfeeds multiple children from different families. If no accurate records are kept, what if a girl from this family breastfed from her as an infant and a young man from this family down the road breastfed from that woman as an infant? The two of them are not immediately related. Families are not related. But they meet, maybe they're in university and they meet and then they... But if there's no accurate record keeping to determine this rada'a relationship, it would be like a brother and a sister getting married. So if that is determined through accurate record keeping, they are off limits to one another. They can't get married. So let's say that it's determined, quite obviously they're not that closely related, and it's determined through accurate record keeping that they're not siblings through wet nursing, rada'a. Well, they are marriageable, right? That basic prerequisite has been met. There also has to be consent. Consent here is, we should discuss this, because in the traditional structure, who is actually engaging in the contract? Technically speaking, it is between the soon-to-be husband, the groom, and the father of the bride. The contract is between them, and you can also, of course, in situations, have the bride express 
the acceptance, the qabul, but the contract is between the groom and Abu Layla. Abu Layla, the father of Layla, is arranging the marriage of his daughter Layla to Khalid, but the consummation of that marriage cannot happen without her consent. No one can be forced to consent to marriage and consummation of that marriage. Now usually her silence will be consent if she is uh, if she has never been married before if she's been married before then she would express her consent and that expression of consent is her qabul her acceptance of the proposal so there's no forced marriages now that has to be in place as well and lastly the wali has to be present the wali has to have a role in this marriage process. The wali is the guardian, right? So Abu Layla is going to be Layla's guardian. The father of the, of the girl will be the wali, and he has to be male, mature, and Muslim. If uh, there's no female wali, there's no child that can act as the wali for his uh, mother if he's uh, under the age of puberty. And a non-Muslim cannot be a wali for a Muslim woman. Now, what is the purpose of the wali? It is, well, there's many functions here. Uh, it is actually in that marriage contract. It is a contract of transferring the financial responsibility from the wali, the father, to the husband. But the main role of the wali is to serve as a guardian, as a to protect his daughter and you know some people feel a little uncomfortable when they hear it described that way but I like to tell them that it is because the father does not have the same emotions and the same chemistry and hormones coursing through his veins that may cloud his judgment about whether this is a wise choice because if, as if a male, a young man and a young woman meet and they begin to catch feelings, they develop feelings for one another, they lose so much objectivity. There could be a thousand red flags and they either ignore the red flags or they minimize the red flags or they explain them away and how, I'll fix them. It's okay, I'll fix them. My love will conquer all. It will conquer all of those problems. They're so blinded by the feelings that they don't really see objectively what they should be seeing. And this is not just females, by the way. This is also the males, but it's the wali who has to approve. If the young man is also clouded in his judgment and the father says no, well, there's a done deal. So the wali is there to say, listen, I see these red flags. There's no suitability. There's all these things. You don't see them, perhaps, because you're clouded by the feelings of the moment. I see them. So it's to protect. So these things have to be in place, that they have to be marriageable. They can't be from a prohibited class where they can't get married. Uh, and that could be permanent, like wet nurse siblings. It could be temporary, as we'll discuss. Uh, there has to be consent. And of course, the wali has to be there, involved in this process. Now, there's other conditions, too. And we say conditions or prerequisites because they are not, they are, they're outside of the, the mahiya or the essence of, of the marriage itself. They're just elements that have to be in place. The next condition or prerequisite to marriage is the mahar, 
the sadaq or the mahar and there's different names used for this in different cultures even in Arabic there's four or five different names used for it it's basically the bridal gift that is given to the wife there's an agreed upon mahar that the groom is agreeing contractually agreeing to give to who is going to be his wife and the amount has to be agreed upon between the two parties and we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that later. Is there a minimum? Is there a maximum? What is the ideal? And what, how do these things work? But this is the basic condition. The consummation of the marriage cannot occur until the mahar is agreed upon. It can be paid over time. They can agree, if it's a mutual agreement, that he'll pay uh, half of it up front and then the second half at a later date deferred if they agree to that it can be uh, an agreement to give her something tangible such as cash money or a car and hopefully you never marry someone who asks you for a car but if they demanded that and you accepted it it's okay right um, it could also be a non-tangible such as her asking that he teach her a chapter of the Qur'an. So that's a non-tangible because it's not something you can put on a shelf or you can park in a garage, but it's something that can be a part of the mahar, the bridal gift that the groom gives to the wife. Another condition that has to be in place is witnesses, shuhud. The contract, the marriage contract itself is not valid without witnesses according to Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. So out of the four schools, three of the schools say the two witnesses are a condition for the validity of the contract itself. If they're not there, the contract is invalid. Imam Madik takes a different position. He is of the view that the two witnesses are not a condition for the validity of the contract. He says the contract is still valid. However, it is haram to consummate that marriage until there are two witnesses brought to, test, to attest that the marriage has been uh, conducted. So, you know, the end conclusion is the same, which is that once the marriage has taken place, he can't just run off with her until there's two witnesses, either at the time of the contract or at the latest after it's over and before she moves in with him there has to be witnesses otherwise it's haram so these witnesses there's a two two muslim male witnesses as a minimum but you can bring other witnesses to witness the contract itself so just we'll go back here for a moment they have to be in the cat of the category that are marriageable there has to be consent on her part the wali has to be involved and there has to be a bridal gift agreed upon between them and there has to be witnesses so these are the prerequisites of marriage once these things are there you come to the actual content of the the aqd itself the contract and the way the marriage is uh, performed so this is where we get to the arkan or the pillars of marriage so the basic pillar of marriage we should actually just put it in the singular instead of saying pillars we should just say pillar 
Because the basic pillar is ijab wa qabul, proposal and acceptance. Right? So this means, number one, as I said earlier, the aqdul nikah, the marriage contract, it is a contract. And a contract is an agreement between two or more parties to certain terms with witnesses. It is a contract. And Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an to fulfill our contracts. And Allah Ta'ala describes the marriage in the Qur'an as a mithaqan ghaliyadha, a weighty covenant. The marriage contract is a contract to transfer nafaqa or financial maintenance from the father to the groom. Right? So as long as the girl is unmarried, she is the financial charge of her father. If the father is not alive, then whatever male is second, that would be the financial charge of that male. In the contract, that responsibility is now transferred from the father to the husband. That, and that's why when we talked about zakat, we mentioned this distinction between those upon whom you have to provide money for and take care of and those you don't among your family members. So the father will say something to the effect, I, I marry you to my daughter so-and-so in accordance with the Qur'an and the Sunnah and upon the mahar agreed upon between us. There is no specific phrase that has to be said. As long as the phrase communicates proposal and acceptance, and that phrase is not ambiguous, then proposal and acceptance has been communicated. So in the event that the girl has never been married and the father is electing to go through this process, he will speak on her behalf and she won't actually have to say anything, right? I, I don't typically do marriages like that here just because there's a certain way people are used to, but in more traditional style marriages, the girl may not even say a word. All she will be asked is if she accepts and she remains silent because her silence is her acceptance, it's her, her consent. So the father could say this, right? I marry you to my daughter so-and-so in accordance with the Quran and the Sunnah and the mahar agreed upon between us. And the groom can say, I accept marriage of your daughter so-and-so in accordance with the Qur'an and Sunnah and upon the mahar agreed upon between us. So in this scenario, who is proposing? The father is proposing and the groom is accepting. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. There are scenarios where the woman, especially if she's been married before and she's a widow or divorcee, there are scenarios where the proposal will come from her and the acceptance will come from the groom. Uh, and this is, this is a norm, this is standard. Um, and you'll find, and this is one of the jokes, right? If, if, if that ever happens to you, and it is the woman who mentions the phrase of proposal, and the husband mentions the phrase of acceptance, he will always have that in his pocket to, to pull out at any time and say, hey, you proposed to me, right? Even though it doesn't really matter. Between the two, proposal and acceptance is, uh, it, it's all the same. 
And this is valid in any language. It doesn't have to be done in Arabic. Uh, it can be done in writing or through the medium of modern technology, provided the identities of the individuals are known. So theoretically, you know, if the Wali is on Skype, maybe he's not physically here, if I can just verify his identity that he is the father, um, that's fine. If the proposal is communicated through email and it's verified, it's, it's all valid. As long as you know it has been transmitted and it's the identities of the people are known. Now there's a few points to consider here. Uh, in that proposal in acceptance, uh, it, it doesn't really matter what words are used as long as the meaning of a proposal is conveyed and the meaning of an acceptance is conveyed. But it can't be so ambiguous that it's not an obvious fact. So the groom couldn't say to the, to the girl, uh, hey, you want to hang out later next week? And she says, uh, okay. That's not proposal and acceptance because that's just, do you want to go hang out? It has to be something of proposal, acceptance in marriage. As long as that's conveyed and it's understood by everyone, then that's sufficient. It also has to be uttered and heard, at least according to the Madiki, it has to be heard by the people too. So that's why we say the words and have the people repeat the words so everyone hears it. Uh, there cannot be unreasonable delays between the proposal and acceptance. Uh, I've never seen that happen, but it would be like the groom proposing and then the bride says hold on a minute and she gets up and she goes to the car and she you know drives halfway across town to go get some bouquet or something and no it's this is unreasonable you start the whole process over but that will never happen uh, another condition the soundness of both parties entering the contract has to be ascertained what does that mean what it means is that it is the responsibility of the father, the wali, the witnesses, the udul, or whoever is in charge of verifying all of this. Uh, this would actually fall on me and my role here in the masjid. That the, the soundness of both parties entering the contract has to be ascertained. What that means is, I have to ascertain they're both Muslim. There's no disqualifying factor that would make marriage between them haram that the identities are verified, the, the wali is verified, the witnesses are present, like all of these things I need to make sure are in place, but particularly I need to make sure that there's nothing disqualifying them from getting married. Usually that's just gonna be a question of deen, right? Uh, as a policy, I don't marry uh, Muslim men to women from Ahlul Kitab, I just don't do it. Uh, so that's not an issue I deal with, although it has come up a few times. Uh, and if these things are in place, then the contract is going to be aqdun sahih, a sound contract. However, we're not done talking about these contracts. Because the contract doesn't have to be in writing. But what if you put it in writing? Or what if the contract is not just the basic proposal and acceptance in return for the mahar? What if there are stipulations added to the contract how do we approach those do you do an islamic prenup you can you can and we want to talk a little bit about that uh, i am 
very much a favor of a minimalist approach. However, I also recognize that the minimalist approach to these contracts work best when both parties have taqwa. But marriage is not just for the muttaqun and the salihun and the awliya. Marriage is for anyone who is basic Muslim, you know, who may or may not be at that level, right? So it is worth considering adding certain stipulations to the contract for both the side of the groom and the bride. So we need to talk a little bit about that so that if if you aren't married and you plan to get married as you should, you know how to do this. And if you are already married and you will at one point, at some point oversee the marriage of your children, um, son or daughter, you will know how to approach this in the correct manner. So let's talk a little bit about that. This gets a little complex and complicated. So this is really an overview of just the basics of how it works. I would always suggest that if you are getting married and adding stipulations uh, or you're wondering about them, that you consult uh, a scholar just to get clarity. And inshallah, maybe at some point I can share with you a draft contract that has some of these terms that has been worked on here in the Pittsburgh community. So. Actually, I forgot to go through these. Um, other things to just quickly go through. Um, for the contract to be valid, we are making sure that the groom fulfills the conditions. So basically, he's Muslim. Uh, the bride fulfills certain conditions, right? Muslim, basically. Uh, conditions pertaining to the guardian. So the wali has to be adult, male, uh, and has to be Muslim. Uh, there's no compulsion on her part. She can't be compelled. Uh, other conditions that have to be there before the contract is valid is really the absence of certain things. So the contract cannot be done while either are in ihram. So you can't do a marriage when you're doing hajj or umrah. And likewise, the marriage contract cannot be conducted when one of the parties is in a mortal illness. What is a mortal illness? It's an illness that you don't expect to survive from. The person's on their deathbed, basically. That means that we're not going to conduct deathbed marriages. Why wouldn't we do that? Think about what that might entail. Right, well, the maqsad of marriage is completely defeated because that person dies very soon after. What other reasons? Exactly, the inheritance. Because remember, the marriage is the transference of, of financial obligations from the wali, the father, to the groom. And with that comes other things. So that if the, when the groom dies, she receives her share of the inheritance. Now, if he's on his deathbed, or she's on her deathbed, there are certain rights that transfer. Uh, let's say... Like in this, and this goes for divorce, by the way, as well. So let's say the husband's, let's say he's got $10 million and he's really mad at his wife. So he divorces her because he don't, doesn't want her to get any money. Will that divorce on the deathbed be, even be accepted in Sharia? Will not. 
Marriage is the same thing because it involves the transference of financial rights and obligations. Uh, we don't do that. So the person has to be uh, free from mortal illness. Uh, and of course, the last condition has to be present, the witnesses. So, you know, if all these things are in place, we have a sound contract. Yeah. You, um, so the issue, well, I mean, that touches on the issue of muta'a, of temporary marriage. And the fuqaha say that if a person were to stipulate in the contract, verbally or in writing, that it is temporary, then that contract is invalid. That marriage cannot be conducted. There is another issue, though. And we dealt with this a lot in the 1990s here in North America where people would get married and they would not put in the contract verbally or in writing that they're going to divorce this person after a certain amount of time, but they would intend it in their heart. It was a very disgusting practice. It was basically marriage with the intention of divorce. There were certain people coming uh, as students living here temporarily they would marry these convert women and they would intend to divorce them as soon as they finished their studies to go back home and marry someone already lined up for them. They wouldn't tell her. It wouldn't be mentioned uh, before the marriage, nor is it mentioned in the contract. Uh, the contract is still valid, but it's a disgusting thing. Because that is something inside of his own heart, his intention. We can't govern that or measure that. We have no access to that. The only way we'd have access is if he verbalized it. And if he verbalized it, she either accepts it or she rejects it. If she rejects it, there's no marriage. If she accepts it, the contract is invalid. So it doesn't go forward. So it's a disgusting thing, but it doesn't have any bearing on the validity of the contract. Right? There are certain conditions you learn about in the intermediate and in advanced books of fiqh where certain things are happening uh, where these things are wrong but the marriage remains valid because the contract was not missing a key ingredient right okay so let's talk now about these contracts conditions in the contract there's three ways you can look at this there are conditions that a person or persons may stipulate in their contract that are already implied in the contract. So just to simplify this, let us assume that the contract is going to be written down. Let's just assume that we're working on a written contract where there is a proposal and an acceptance with an agreed upon mahar and both parties are agreeing to certain terms. So. Let's say the bride has certain conditions and the groom has certain conditions. And this is all written down and signed and witnessed. So we're, we're working on that basis. There are certain conditions which are already implied in the nature of the contract itself, such as the agreement to care for the wife financially. Do you need to even write that in the contract? You don't need to write that because it's already implied because we said the aqad, the contract, is transference of nafaqa from the father to the groom. It's already implied, so writing it down or keeping it out, it's the same. You, you're already agreeing to that. 
It doesn't make any sense to write it down. I mean, you could. It's not going to affect it, but its presence or absence is equal because you're already agreeing to that. Likewise, if you put in the contract, I agree not to uh, beat up my spouse. The agreement is already implied because you're, the implication is I will live with this person in excellence and in kindness and I will not bring any darar, any harm to her or him. It's already implied. Likewise, the agreement that he's going to provide her with adequate clothing and shelter and food and all of these things, it's already implied. So if those things are put in writing on the contract, they don't change the nature of the contract. Is it wrong to put those things in the contract? No, there's nothing haram or makru about it. There's no issue whatsoever. It's just that there's no need because those things are already implied. So that's the first thing we can consider. The, the second pertains to conditions put in the contract that contradict what is implied in the contract by its very nature. And this is the opposite of what we just mentioned. So in example one, these are things that are already implied in the contract. You're already signing up for these things. So why write them down? In this example, these are things that they're writing down which are in direct contradiction to the, the purpose and implied agreement in the contract. So it's like the fuqaha give these examples. Putting as a condition in the contract, contract that she cannot live with him. So he says, uh, I propose to you in marriage according to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and, according, and based on the mahar agreed upon between us and the condition that yeah, you stay living with your parents and I'm not going to have to deal with any of that. I'll just pick you up and drop you off and you can do your own thing. No, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not valid. Or he says, uh, we agree with the condition that I'm not going to give you any provision You're on your own, fin for yourself Or, he says, with the condition that when I die You're not going to inherit a single penny So these are conditions that contradict What is implied in the contract by its very nature Now in the Madiki school, and that's what I can speak from These conditions would actually invalidate the contract if they are mentioned at the time of the contract. So when they're agreeing on these things, whether verbally or in writing, in the presence of the witnesses, when these things are talked about, if it's at that time, that would invalidate the contract, causing it to be annulled before the consummation of that marriage. But let's say they got married without these things, but they, kind, they tried to, or he tried to ratify the conditions after the marriage. So they, they did the aqad, but he's trying to ratify the agreement. If they're mentioned uh, before or after the consummation, but after the aqad, the marriage still stands. So here's the aqad, the contract was conducted, witnessed, and then there's the consummation of the marriage, right? If after the aqad, and, or, and before the consummation, or after, these things were added, then the fuqaha say that 
The marriage is still valid because it comes after the aqad, but those conditions are completely invalid and have no legal bearing. So, to simplify this, Khalid and Layla get married. The wali is there, the witnesses are there, he has the mahar, there's the proposal, the acceptance. Everything is in place perfectly according to the sunnah. They are now married, husband and wife. They're driving to his home. The marriage has not yet been consummated. But has the contract been concluded? Yes, they are married. In the car, on the way to his house, he says, you know what? I think we should add something to that contract that if I die, you don't get a penny. Is the marriage now invalid? No, the contract is still valid because nothing was wrong with it. Is that attempt to ratify the contract given any consideration whatsoever? It's nothing. It has no validity whatsoever, no legal bearing. I mean, that would be an uncomfortable car ride for her, for sure, but in terms of the fiqh, the marriage is still there. What she chooses to do after that, I don't know, but this is just the fiqh, okay? So you can't add those kinds of things in the contract. Uh, but if they are in the contract, it renders it invalid. So be mindful of these things. So here we have the first one, then we have the opposite, and now we have what is in between the two. And this is where the sticking points are. And that pertains to conditions added to the contract that are neither implied in the contract nor contradicted by its very nature. So it's not like those in number one or number two. It's not like saying, I agree to take care of you, or I put in the contract that I'm not going to take care of you. Uh, it's something else in between these things. Examples include him, the groom, agreeing that he will not get married to a second wife. This is a very common item added to different marriage contracts. Or he agrees in the contract stage that he will not move her to another country. So there's some details concerning these conditions. It's not just you can add whatever you want to add and then everything is copacetic. No, there's some details. So I'm going to engage in a little bit of comparative fiqh here uh, or a little bit of talfiq. Uh, taking between the different schools. But I'm going to start from the Madiki school first because that's the, the umda or the asl on which I'm operating. Huh? So in the Madiki school, it is makruh to add these conditions. Conditions that are not contradicted by the nature of the contract nor are they, uh, what's the term we use in English, like free gift, tautologies, right? It's like I give you a free gift. A free gift is a tautology because free and you know, gift means it's free. It's like saying the pristine sunnah, right? Is there a sunnah that's not pristine, right? So anyhow, in the Madiki school, these conditions that are in between those, are makruh, but they do not invalidate the contract. All of the conditions in this third category 
are not binding as a legal obligation. So they could be in the contract, but they're not actually binding unless the person agreeing to it engages in an oath, bidiyameen, he takes a solemn oath to fulfill them. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't fulfill them, it just means that it's, it's not wajib, it's recommended for, to fulfill them, but they don't have uh, a legally binding nature like other things would. So the only time these things would be binding, shar'an, legally speaking, is if it's, they are enacted by a solemn oath, a yameen, uh, and they are linked to divorce, where in that it's basically saying, if you do get a second wife, you swear an oath by Allah, that you will uh, delegate the right to seek divorce to, uh, where I could ask for that and get it. You know, in those situations, if it's with that kind of detail, it would take effect and it would be binding. But if, you know, maybe if you take the divorce or the second wife thing out of it, let's just say the person puts, uh, you agree to give me a back rub uh, five days a week for the next 15 years. If you're not taking a yameen, an oath to that, you know, it's makrul to put these kinds of things. And if it's in there, it's recommended to fulfill them if you can, but it's not a legally binding thing that's affecting the, the, the contract, right? Now for divorce, in the event of him marrying a second wife where he delegates that authority and is agreeing to it, this is called tafweed al-talaq. And there are some details between the schools uh, about when that would be valid. And it's not a universal, and it's not something I really suggest. Uh, I know that uh, ta'addud, polygamy, uh, is supposed to be some super controversial issue. Uh, it's not that common, and I don't think it's really that helpful to add these things for most people. Uh, but if it's to be done, it has to be done right. So let's go to the Hanafi school. I said we're going to look into some other schools. Now in the Hanafi school, this would be perfectly valid to say in the contract, if you marry a second wife, I cannot prohibit you from doing that. Cannot prohibit that because that is the right Allah Ta'ala has given to men who fulfill those conditions. And those conditions are not so impossible to achieve that they're off limits to 99.9.999% of men. It's an option. However, if you do so, I ask that you agree to delegate the right to divorce, that you give that to me. She could do that. However, in the Hanafi school, <laughs> there's a really important condition that has to be met. The offer of marriage has to be initiated by her. So the ijab, the ijab has to come from her. So she's the one proposing to marriage. Uh, her or the wadi, her father, is the one proposing the marriage. If she does that, and this is in the contract, and is coupled with this demand for tafwid al-talaq, and he accepts it, then it's fine. But if he is the one proposing, and she's the one accepting, she can't actually stipulate that. So that, that's how it is in the Hanafi school. And I'm presenting the Madiki and the Hanafi school just to show you how this works. I'm not sure how this is in the Shafi school, but uh, these things happen. 
and I think it's usually better to avoid them, but if you are to put conditions, you can do them, but do them very carefully, as I'll show you, inshallah. Now, this is actually taken from uh, a document that I, I hope to share with you in the near future. Uh, this is a document that seeks to put conditions that people can choose to add to their own marriage contracts that ensures the best outcome for marriages in North America. Now, we'll start from the issue of conditions that speak about resolving possible conflicts. One of the objectives in the Quran is that of tahkim, right, in the case of marital disputes. So to guarantee the implementation of that tahkim in mention of Surah An-Nisa and to combine it with other family guidelines encouraging witnesses for divorce or witnesses when the husband and the wife take or the husband takes her back uh, each party is encouraged to designate a trusted Muslim family member or community member to serve that office now you could add that in a contract you could say in the contract this is perfectly permissible you know in the event of a dispute I would like family member X to be a part of that tahkim process the, of, of bringing the families together to work things out. You know, I want this person or I want this imam in the community to be a part of that process and you agree to allow them to be a part of that process if, God forbid, there's any dispute in the future. And he can do the same thing and he can say, I would like to have X from my family or imam so-and-so to be a part of that process should, God forbid, there's a dispute arising in the future that we can't solve. So if you put that in the contract, this serves the purpose of uh, creating a structure that can help resolve any future problems that may arise. And we hope no problems arise, but we're all human beings. So to put that there can be a good idea for some people. Now, when either spouse uh, seeks their assistance, those people, the relatives or the imams, should be mediating to bring harmony between them using conflict resolution. And if they study the situation of the spouses and agree that there is neglect in the rendering of rights or transgressing rights, and so on, so they can petition the imam to actually declare a separation by coerced tatriqa, the divorce pronouncement. This ties back to what we were speaking about in one of the previous classes, how in, in, in Madiki fiqh at least, the collectivity of elders and learned people and imams in a community can effectively serve the role of the qadi. It has to be done properly and organized, but this is one possible way of doing that. Now you can put that in the contract. And the groom and the bride can sign and designate their relative and who serves that function. So it's something just to consider. Now how you would write it, I have a, we have a written guide. Um, so these conditions are to be made binding on the groom. And by writing them and signing them in the presence of witnesses, the document aids Islamic entities in performing fasq or ratifying divorce. 
What's the purpose of these conditions? Is that when they're in writing, when they're witnessed, they enable the stakeholders in the community, the imams and those charged with these shari matters, to serve that role as a collective for possible annulment in the event that rights are not rendered or there's transgressions that exceed the bounds. So I don't want to go too much into that, but we'll look at some of these terms that may be added. Um, the groom can grant the bride agency in pronouncing divorce herself, this tafwid al-talaq, with the supervision of and written endorsement by any imam or Islamic scholar educated in Islamic law. So you can get those people involved in that process and you can put those terms in the contract. Um, here's what I would suggest people consider. It's not for everybody, but these are some things to consider. Possible conditions that may be added. You could put in the conditions that if the husband refuses to provide the necessities of life for the wife for a period of X amount of months from the date of the signing, or for any uh, unforeseen period of X consecutive months thereafter, regardless of the reasons, and it was the case that he cannot commit to it or be obligated to it, she now retains that uh, agency for, of, of divorce. So basically she has a way out if he becomes a deadbeat and refuses to provide, right? Because these things happen, so there needs to be a way out. And if that's agreed upon and that comes to pass, she has a mechanism for getting out of that situation. Uh, likewise, if the husband refuses his wife her conjugal rights for a period of four months without a valid excuse, such as travel or temporary illness. Also, if the husband becomes permanently incapable of such and she desires chastity, chastity, she doesn't have to get out of the marriage, but this is an option should she wish it. So is this all one-sided towards the wife? Yes. Why? Because the husband already has the talaq. You can just say divorce, right? But that option isn't for her. So by tafwid al-talaq being uh, agreed upon under these conditions, there are ways out in the event these things occur. Uh, likewise, if the husband's diagnosed with a communicable chronic illness putting the wife or children at risk, it happens sometimes, and I, I know of cases where uh, the husband and the wife, they get married and the husband did not tell the wife that he has HIV. This has happened. So let's say she finds out and that he has HIV and she doesn't have it. What is she to do? Is she to stay and perhaps contract that? Or does she have a mechanism for getting out? By having this there, she has a way out. If the husband loses some of his mental capacity via diagnosed dementia, Alzheimer's, insanity, etc., same thing. If the husband is imprisoned for a period considered unbearable for the wife of at least X amount of months, or the couple are otherwise prevented from cohabiting. So you can add that. If any type of negative addiction or illegal activity by the husband, which makes family life difficult to continue or unbearable for the wife or jeopardizing safety of herself and or children. So, you know, there are people 
who do wrestle with addiction and maybe they beat the addiction you know years before but it's always possibly on the horizon right or maybe they don't know of anything like that but they want to put it in the contract they can and this is uh, something to consider for some people uh, likewise if the, his whereabouts are unknown for a period of X months usually that's four uh, and upon reasonable verification and notification um, reduced to four months if he was a sole provider uh, so there are situations where a woman had a difficult marriage the husband refused to divorce her he refused to give her the khula and then he disappears he goes back wherever who knows where could be other side of the country and he cuts off communication with her no no phone no email nothing she's not divorced but is she really married she is shara'an she can't remarry but she has no way out she's mu'allaqa so the imam when he verifies this information or the body of imams could grant the fasq the annulment of the marriage if things are verified if this is stipulated in the contract there's a very clear mechanism for uh, addressing this problem if he just ups and disappears and you know these things are mentioned because they happen right uh, if the husband prevents or hinders the wife from practicing her basic faraid uh, or if he solicits her or children to do anything categorically forbidden in Islam by classical scholars despite her protest uh, you have to be careful with this one I mean basically if he stops her from making salah or fasting in Ramadan uh, or if he tries to pull the family into clear-cut haram bin ijma', you know, consensus haram, uh, not things that are different over, uh, putting that in the contract can give her a way out. Uh, if he leaves the basic uh, arkan of Islam, salat, zakat, fasting, or commitment to perform hajj, you know, this is something too that a person could consider. Uh, and really, it's just a matter of putting terms it's a very unromantic thing, right? Uh, I, I did a marriage maybe a year and a half ago, and some of these terms were added to the contract, and they were asking for help in ratifying and fixing them. And, you know, we're reading them together, you know, the, the groom and the soon-to-be bride, uh, they're all there. And it was a very unromantic thing to talk about all of these things. But it's a contract. Right? Is it romantic to get a car and go through the contract from the beginning to the end? No. You're just thinking about the romantic side of owning a car. Like, okay, it's a new car, I'm driving it, I have the windows rolled down, hair is blowing in the wind, and it's really nice. But before you can do that, you have to go through the contract. And the contract is not an entertaining, romantic experience. But if you don't go through the contract with a fine-tooth comb, you may get ripped off there may be a problem and you're going to complain wishing that you had gone through that contract with more attention so I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to write their marriage contracts with all of these things but they are allowed and they could work for some people right and so we talked about these things uh, and as I said earlier when it comes to putting conditions uh, it's best to consult with an imam to see what's valid versus what's invalid and uh, the best ways of writing them. Yeah? Would these also have to be 
complied with an oath? The basis for all of our contracts, whether they are uh, contracts of sale or contracts of marriage or contracts of uh, debt, of loaning money, the basis is that uh, our word is bond, that when we say we agree to something, we're going to fulfill it. Nevertheless, it's good to have things in writing because even though verb, the verbal agreement is sufficient, it's good to have things in writing in case people forget or they dispute what they agreed to and conflict arises. So what was your question again? Those have to be secured by oath. The putting it in writing and signing it in the presence of witnesses serves as that oath. And what about the stuff you mentioned earlier? In the case of the divorce okay. and for marrying a second wife. And that's, we'll go back to that just to show you again. Now, uh, so let's say she wants to put in the contract that he does not get married to a second wife. He cannot prohibit her from this. So he can't, she can't just say a term in our contract is that you just cannot get married to a second wife. That's not binding at all. And that's makru. If, however, it says, you, if you get married to a second wife, you take a solemn oath that if you get married to a second wife, you delegate the, the agency of divorce to me. So it's not forbidding him from getting married, it's that, to a second wife, it's that if he does it, he is agreeing by oath, bil yameen in the Madiki school, so yes, in that case, there is that yameen, that solemn oath, that the divorce agency is delegated to her where she can get out of that marriage. But it's, that's very different from just saying, you can't get married to a second wife. If that's in the contract, if there's no, can, if there's no tying that to tafwid al-talaq, and it's not with a yameen, it's not, a, it's not valid, it doesn't have to be adhered to, it's makru. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I had a marriage contract. I said to myself I wasn't going to say this, but I think I will. Uh, I did a marriage contract one time that I had to ratify. I sent the whole thing back and I said, take all of this out except for one, two, three. Uh, one, of the con one of the items in the contract, they said, if we get divorced, I get half of your wealth, no questions asked, if it's your fault. And if it's my fault, you get nothing from me. And who's going to determine who's at fault? It's uh, the imam of my choosing or something like that. Like, oh, yeah, that's clever. I threw it out. I said, take this out. This is not, you know. So you've got, you got to be careful with these contracts. That's why I say this, the simple approach is the best, but that needs taqwa. That needs taqwa where if things don't work out in the long run, the person you're marrying has enough taqwa that even if things don't work out, they're going to treat you right. And if they have to part ways, 
through divorce, it's done in the best way possible in that difficult situation. This was the advice of Imam Hassan al-Basri. He said, marry your children to someone with taqwa, because if they are good, they're gonna treat them good. If, they, if things don't work out, they have enough taqwa to manage that difficult marriage in the best way possible by at least not going beyond the bounds or denying rights. They'll get the divorce in the best way possible in that difficult situation. So these things need taqwa, and if there's no taqwa, no amount of contracts and stipulations are gonna mean anything, right? So even if you add these, all it is, it just gives one person a way out if the other person is refusing. So consider carefully who you marry, and yeah, it's very unromantic, but it has to be talked about. You have three questions. One of the, the husband and wife leave Islam, if one of if if one of them leaves Islam, by ridda by apostasy, then the marriage is automatically annulled, and that person would have to take their shahada over again, and the contract would have to be renewed. Yeah. And the second, the second go? No, it's the same. I just wonder, like, this is a contract. We can add a few things to it. So, like, is that something that's possible? If the husband and wife just make a basic agreement after the fact that they're going to commit to a certain way of being, that's fine. It just has no bearing on the validity of the contract. Whether you do that or don't do that, the, the contract was valid the moment it was conducted. All of the conditions were in place and the prerequisites. So it's not going to affect it, right? And the only thing that would be prohibited there is if it's something that's contradictory to Sharia, right? We're going to ratify it where you're going to go live on your own and I get, you don't get any of my inheritance. You can't do that. But if it's something else, just the two of them say, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to change things up a little bit and agree to have date night every Thursday. Sure, why not? Right, that's between them. And the last one is like the coerced Is that different Yeah, this is basically an imposed by coercion by the Imam, like forcing that. Yeah, it's different. The khula is where the woman is agreeing to forego her mahar in return from being, for being released from the bonds of marriage. And that has to have a legitimate reason justifying it. It can't just be, oh, you know, some like unreasonable uh, reason. Um, but, I mean, we'll get to that when we talk about divorce. But uh, that's often not the best recourse for women, right? Often the best recourse is, if things aren't working out, to get him to just pronounce the divorce. Because that way you retain the mahar, right? So you have talaq. And you have the nuclear option, which is the fasq, which is when the imam, the qadi, or those who serve that function in the community annul the marriage, regardless of what he thinks or even she thinks. Right? Yeah. Yes. I know certain 
Mm-hmm. And she wanted to marry a man who had really none. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put in their contract that he did not have to provide for her. Would that be something that, that he could hold against her or something that's valid? He has to provide. That's his role. If she's agreeing to take a step down socioeconomically and then use her own money for her own things outside of that bare minimum, that's her prerogative because it's her money. But he cannot agree or they cannot put in the contract that he forgoes that role of being the, 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 the qawam, the one who is charged with that financial maintenance. If he's... Uh, if he's poor and she has money, she can use her money the way she wants to use it. She can even give him some of that money, but he cannot forego that duty of nafaqa at the, at the root within the contract. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. That would apply to children as well. Hmm? Supporting the children. It applies to the children as well. Yeah. Any other questions? I have one more. Sure. Yeah, so next week we're talking exclusively about the rights and responsibilities after the marriage. So if you remember our first couple of classes, we just defined the marriage and the legal judgment. And then last week it was about the proposal process. And today we're looking at the conditions and the proposal and acceptance and the contract itself. Now that's all been done. The contract has been signed. Happily ever after, they're married now. Now they're going home. Next week we talk about now what are the rights and responsibilities that are a part of that marriage. So we'll talk about that. You can bring the question up next week, inshallah. I'll probably be addressing it in a general sense, but if I don't answer it in the direct way, remind me, inshallah. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Any other questions? It's not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. Uh, marriage and divorce are not taken lightly. Uh, if a person jokes with phrases of divorce, the divorce takes place. We'll talk about that at some point when we talk about divorce. If a husband was to just joke with his wife and he's, he's not even intending this. He's just joking. He's like, yeah, I divorce you. Because divorce takes place when you're serious and when you're joking about it. That's why the words shouldn't even come out of the mouth. There are too many people who use that word and they throw it out as a threat when they're having a problem until it's not a threat anymore and they're actually stating it multiple times in one sitting. And out of their ignorance, they don't realize that they have made their life incredibly difficult now because they have destroyed the marriage uh, just out of ignorance 
by saying the divorce multiple times, not even realizing what they're doing. But so marriage is a serious matter. Divorce is a serious matter. So when we talk about these things, those contracts are weighty because they entail rights and responsibilities and they entail istihlal al-furuj, making lawful, making halal what is by default haram. Remember that maxim we mentioned, the qa'idah, that the default for things is permissibility, ibaha, except for al-luhum wal-furuj, except for the, the meats that we eat and except for sexual relations. So marriage is that thing that makes what is default haram halal. So it's a serious business. And this is one reason why Allah describes the marriage as mithaqan ghalidha, a weighty covenant between the two. Yeah. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad.